Great to see you. And I want to talk today about the church that I see. Uh, this is part of a two-week vision series. Adam and I will speak uh, both weeks. Uh, and it comes at a point when uh, we are in the process of moving from being part of St. Michael the Belfry into being a church that's directly related to the diocese with some more opportunities that that brings for us to do more. Um, and uh, it also... Um, comes as we think the other side of the summer break we're going to move from having two services in this room to having two services in two locations um, today is uh, if you like a conversation so I, I get to speak for about 20 minutes but the idea is actually that we're all part of this discussion the church that we see uh, and at the end of the service today you'll be given a document uh, to have a look at uh, there's an opportunity to give some feedback via the website, and there's opportunities through friends and hubs and any other uh, type of means that might be available to have conversations about what is in the future, what does God have in store for us as a church. But let me share some of the things that are on my heart for our church. And the first thing is this, the church I see is a place where people are discovering and following Jesus Christ. In fact, that's our mission statement, to help people discover and follow Jesus Christ. And as you know, the church, particularly in the developed world, is in decline, particularly in the historic denominational churches. In fact, the peak of uh, church attendance to population ratio in our country happened in 1904. And since then, the stats have been on a decline, and particularly since the end of the Second World War. And this is a challenge for the historic denominational churches, uh, and it's particularly in Europe and in North America. And statistically speaking, the denominations have lost their connection with people under the age of 50. I've just turned 50, so um, I must be well connected uh, to the church. But for nearly everyone else, oh, for uh, almost everyone else uh, in the room, <laughs> the church at large has lost its connection with you, and in some quarters, uh, your very, your very uh, interest and your lifestyle and your religious engagement is a mystery uh, to some. The latest survey across uh, Europe says that faith attendance for 16 to 29-year-olds is at the all-time low that it's ever been in terms of recording. The summary at the end of that survey said this, Christianity in Europe, as a default or the norm is gone, and probably gone for good, or at least for the next 100 years. The Church of England, which we are part of, an 18-year-old is eight times less likely to be in church on a Sunday than a 76-year-old. And the Church of England has got a lot of 76-year-old people. Without change, this aged age profile of the average church means that mainline denominations will continue to see decline for at least a further 20 years. Uh, and I'm doing research at the moment, and one of my estimates is that in our own diocese, and it, it wouldn't be unique in this diocese, uh, that probably 90% of churches will close in the next 15 years. Now, you'll probably know that it's not the same story around the rest of the world. In China, South America, India, Africa, parts of Asia, the Christian church is growing, if not even thriving. 
Uh, I've got friends in India, parts of Africa and uh, Southeast Asia who see this uh, firsthand. They're actually participating and involved in it. Uh, one friend of mine, uh, Theo, uh, has been involved for the last 14 years in a project. So to put this in context, G2's been going for 13 years. So he's been doing this just one more year than we've been around as a church. Uh, and in that period, he's planted 75,000 village churches in Africa. I'm studying with him. Honestly, we had him checked out and everything. He's the real deal. It's 75,000 churches. He's connected, this movement that he started, connects with at least three and a half million people. So it puts our little story into a more encouraging but global context. And that's why our year of invitation is so important. As a church, through most of our time, we've been good at connecting with people who've maybe stopped going to church or drifted away. That we, we call those the D, the D church. And we've been quite good at, at those. Maybe people who basically just got a bit bored of church and we were less boring and people connected with that and people who rediscovered a faith or maybe a faith they had as youth or, or through uh, transition at university. Um, but increasingly, most people that we meet today never went to church in the beginning. And so that, that kind of, that thread, that door that sort of says, welcome back, doesn't make any sense because they were never there in the first place. We live in an age when the majority of people are indifferent to Jesus, know little about him, or even the basic stuff about church. Take my hairdresser, for example, Dennis. Dennis believes that I am an imam. Okay, let me put it together to you. I turned up once wearing my dog collar. I'm a bit brown. He put two and two together. He came up with 99. And, he, and it, you know, he's trying to be nice to the customers. Uh, and so he concludes, ah, oh, must be an imam. The last time I saw him, no lie, I got my hair cut before Kate's wedding. The last time I saw him, he said to me, how is the mosque? <laughs> so I said to him, thanks so much for asking. The mosque is going really well. And I gave him a little update. And he was really interested to hear that we don't sit on mats and women are allowed to come. Now, Dennis', Dennis is religious understanding actually is increasingly reflective of people that you will know and I will know, people that you meet and I meet, in terms of even their rudimentary understanding about what following Jesus might look like. Uh, like millions of other people like him, he needs a different type of expression of church to connect with in order to find out more about Jesus. And that's why, for example, this year it's been so important that we're running Alpha, that so many of the hubs are trying to have an outward-looking focus so that we create more opportunities for people to discover and follow Jesus. In fact, I think one of the first steps in evangelism today with someone that we meet is probably you're a Christian and you're okay. That's probably step one before anything else might be said or communicated about the gospel or what it might mean to follow Jesus. So it's really encouraging. This year, we've actually seen a real change 
in what God's been doing in our church. So far, 15 people have responded to follow Jesus. 12 people have got baptized, some even spontaneously uh, on the day. And we're only partway through the year. We hope that will be more, and we hope that will increase. It's one of the reasons that we're transitioning from two services to be two sites. Uh, as the supermarkets put it, more checkouts, more customers. Uh, two sites, two different locations, allows us to connect with a wider range of people. It allows us to be more locally available, and it allows us to be more locally adapted to the people that we might connect with in one particular place. To move away from something that's just sort of like a, a generic church pitch to something that can be a dynamically engaged local community finding context in the midst of those who are coming to faith in that place. And the engine of any church is mission. Without it, we're just a club for churchy people. And the statistics that we've heard will be our inevitable fate unless we are increasingly committed to and learning how to be engaged in mission. And this year I've been stirred by the need to get beyond just meetings and activities where in effect our mission comes down to uh, come to us. And that's because most people that we know, most people that live near us, will never come to a church event. And so we're limited our, limiting our connection just to the few that are already in warm to the invitation that they might receive. I was speaking last month to a student worker from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Sounds really good. I'm hoping for a visit sometime soon. He was telling me that in the last five years, they've seen a 1,000 students come to faith because they've been doing open-air preaching on campus. He said it took them five years with lawyers to get permission to preach on the campus, and then for the far, far, last five years, they've seen over a 1,000 people uh, respond and come to faith. And these are some of the forgotten ways of the church. We've, we've lost connection with our history and our understanding about how Jesus got us to be here in the first place. The ancient missionaries, the first people who proclaimed Jesus in Britain, they were walking and talking evangelists. They would walk pathways from one place to the next and evangelize whoever they met on the way. Cuthbert, Aidan, Patrick, Hilda, they were all missionaries and church planters who understood that mission is the engine of the church. So what they'd do is they'd get up in the morning, pray for an hour, take Holy Communion, have a sturdy breakfast, and they'd head out on the road. And then the rule was, whoever they met, they'd stop and talk to them. If they didn't, if they didn't know Jesus, they would evangelize them. If they did know Jesus, they would bless them. If they were sick, they would pray for their healing, and then they'd move on and meet the next person, and the next person, and the next. And throughout history, this, this uh, returning to uh, a bold proclamation of Jesus that gets beyond the church meeting, that uh, is, is much more aggressively outward looking and connects with people who are not connected with holy clubs like churches, always precedes growth in the church and, uh, and revival. John Wesley, who you've heard of, maybe uh, George Whitfield, alive at the same time, they preached in the streets to reach the masses. 
they would often wait outside mines or factories so that they could preach to people at the end of their shift as they were coming out. They'd stand on the side of hills so they could have a natural amplification and sometimes preached to thousands. John Wesley, shortly after his uh, father's death, his father was a vicar, uh, and he went to his father's church in Epworth, and he wanted to preach uh, a sermon before he went uh, traveling to America. And the new vicar didn't like Wesley and hadn't liked his father and refused him permission uh, to preach in the church, even though he'd initially said you could come on a certain date. So much did he not like him that he preached that day a sermon entitled, Quench Not the Holy Spirit, and he referred to avoiding the many dodgy characters that might beset us, obviously referring to Wesley and his friends. And as the church service ended and people were coming out, Wesley's friend John Taylor stood in the churchyard and gave a notice. And he said, Mr. Wesley, not being permitted to preach at the church, designs to preach here at six o'clock. Come you all who are ready to hear his words. Wesley wrote in his diary that accordingly at six I came and I found such a congregation as I believe Epworth Church had never seen before. I stood near the east end of the church upon my father's tombstone. So he'd been refused permission to be in the church, but he owned the grave of his father, the nearest piece of property to the church. So he stood there in defiance and preached his sermon from there. And he wrote in his journal, I preached a sermon, the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It went so well, he returned every day that week to preach. And he later wrote in his journal that he saw more fruit preaching on his father's gravestone than he ever did from his father's pulpit. And the phrase that Wesley became famous for, all the world is my parish, was born through that experience of him. So the church I see, the church I hope for, is one that's helping people to discover and follow Jesus. Secondly, the church I see is one that's raising and releasing leaders. And this over the years actually has been one of our strengths to raise up new leaders. And initially we did this out of necessity. We just desperately needed people who could do stuff. But increasingly we're doing this out of conviction because we think it's strategic. And I'm proud to say that, that almost all of the leaders at G2 are homegrown. That is, they've kind of cut their teeth and learned how to through being involved at G2. We've got over 20 people, for example, on the speaking team, over 30 on the children's team, over 30 on the worship team. Um, I'm currently talking to six people who are thinking about getting ordained in the Church of England to go off to lead other churches. That, that number's huge for a church of our size. It's, it's another reflection of people being raised up as leaders. And I'm currently researching some of the dynamics about how you can do that better and faster, just using simple apprenticeship methods that allow people, in effect, to learn how to do some ministry uh, through on-the-job training. And next week, I want to talk a bit more about why that is strategically important for things that we might do in the future. My observation is some churches are lazy about raising up leaders. They see leadership as a commodity that you can buy in. And there's a flawed logic to that process. 
Because if leaders come to you already trained and already with experience, then who is it that's training them and providing them with that experience so that you can benefit from them in order to lead your church or the different ministries? And in that approach, leadership just becomes the same as employing people. And in churches where that happens, ministry in effect is all done by employees. Um, through uh, G2 and also my work I do with Alpha, I spend a lot of time talking to church planters in the UK um, and also in America. And even with this pioneering group of think people, um, this, this approach to how to do church is still very common. There's an assumption and a presumption that in order to start a church or in order to make a church grow, you need to employ in more talent. And that's how you make the church grow. I've been visiting a few different churches um, this year, and I've, I've noticed the, the thread of that in lots of places that I've been to. One church on the Sunday that I went to, every person serving was employed. PA guy, employed. The speaker, employed. The worship team, all of them, employed. The person leading the meeting was employed. Even the person that gave the notice and the person that greeted me as I came in the building worked for the church. Now, I can see the ease of doing that. I mean, it saves a lot of stress on the rotor because you just get staff to run the show. But that's not the church that we see. And it's not the church that we're trying to build up. That, in effect, is just a show, uh, a show led by staff. And that's one of the reasons why we're focusing on a, a model, a growth model, that is about having meetings of under 180. And there's something around that number, the people in the room, that becomes like a, a sweet spot for quality, for having enough people to serve and to be involved, and to give people an opportunity to be personally involved in what's happening. It means the meeting can be led by somebody who's not ordained or not employed. And something happens when a meeting goes above about 200 people or so. It becomes more of a production, um, and it loses something of its community feel. And it means as you, as you grow, if you just grow the meeting above 200, what you end up having to do in order to sustain it is have more and more experts or staff or employees doing the work and the ministry of the church. And it means fewer people get to be involved. Fewer people get the opportunity to learn, to test out their gifts, or to develop their skills. So the church that we see is a, is a volunteer-empowered one. Although I appreciate today is a very, very bad model, because I work for the church, Adam works for the church, and Hannah works for the church. So just pretend that's not the case, and pretend it's one of the previous Sundays that you came, where actually maybe all the people didn't work for the church. That's what our model should look like, but this is just coincidence today that it happened like that. But we're not going to be a staff-fronted church, where we hire in the talent, and through doing that, that's how we put on the church show. We want to be something that's volunteer-empowering, collaborative, that gives people an opportunity to grow and learn through participation, and ultimately a church that can look beyond just Sunday meetings. And thirdly and lastly, the church I see is a church that's starting new things. And I want to say a lot more about this 
next week, and particularly why that's strategic. But it's worth acknowledging, and not everyone here, in fact, very few of us were here from the very beginning, but G2 began in order to deliberately try something new. So that's in our DNA, in effect, to be something different. And, that, and, and we're not trying to be the same as others, because we'll never be as good as others are just by copying them. So, for example, I love evening prayer um, from a service book. And nowhere does that better locally than York Minster. So I'm never going to go, let's try and do evening prayer here. Because that particular approach, that style of worship, that opportunity, we'd, we'd never do it as well as they did. Do. And, and also, what, it's, it's available just there. So if you had a friend who you thought, that would be a brilliant way for them to find out about Jesus, they would really appreciate that style, then they should connect there because that's available. And there are people who are doing it who love that style of worship and do it with passion. So we're not trying to just copy and be the same. We're actually trying to find some of the lost ways that people we know can maybe have as a way of finding out about Jesus. Because so few people connect with church. We need churches that are innovative and experimental in order to discover how the people we know might come and find out more. So we're currently involved in starting new things at the moment, and I, and I hope that will accelerate as we grow. Um, so far, we've, we've gone from one service to two. That will go from two services to two locations to two sites. We, of course, have our midweek groups called hubs. And hubs are a brilliant way for anyone in the church to try something new. The whole model is designed around saying, if you've got an idea, if you've got an experiment that you would like to try, we've got a model that makes it really easy for you to do that. And you won't necessarily know if it's going to work or not work or what you might learn through doing it. But through running it in a hub, you can test it out, and then it, and then it could become the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Miriam, as many of you know, we prayed for at the end of last year and sent her off to Middlesbrough. She's involved in helping churches in Middlesbrough start new things and to, uh, to uh, increase their uh, mission engagement and particularly to help churches connect with students and with student mission. And because of the stats that I told you at the beginning, the level, the volume of collapse in the historic wing of the church, this, this thing of churches starting new things, I believe, will just become the new normal. And rather than us assuming that a church map uh, stays the same, that we were born and there were all these churches in these places, and when we die, all those churches will be in the same places, that actually we're in an age when a bit like Cuthbert and Aben and Patrick and Hilda, we will need to repeat the evangelism of those who gave birth to us, our forefathers, in order to re-evangelize our nation. And the early Methodists that we heard about, founded on John Wesley's evangelistic spirit, they started with their commitment to mission. That's all Wesley wanted to do. He just wanted to do mission. He was a Church of England priest. He had no intention of leaving that, but he saw the need. He saw that there were so many people the church weren't 
reaching. In his day, it was because the church was so middle class and the church wasn't meeting the working man or the working woman. And he wanted to connect with them and show them that faith was relevant. So he started with an evangelistic passion, a commitment to mission. But within only a few years, he ended up planting churches, founding schools, feeding the hungry, and changing society. And within Wesley's lifetime, that evangelistic movement had spread all around the globe. Okay, we pause here for a few minutes, and I want you to get chatting to the person next to you. And if you can just click on to the... Um, when you leave today, you'll be given a little leaflet called The Church We See. And it came out of a conversation at a coffee shop and a leader's retreat and some people trying to write down some words that describe some of the heart of church. It might stir some of your passion. And that's the design of the document. It's, it's to give you something to think about and talk about. And as you flip the leaflet that you're giving, you'll see it's got a blank space on the back. And it asks the question, what church do you see? Uh, and we want to hear what you think. And in fact, if now it's live, you can go to the front page of the website, so g2york.org, today and all through to next uh, week, and you can just send back your feedback. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. So Adam's going to come in a minute, and he's going to talk to us about resourcing and exciting things like that. But let's take two minutes to chat to the person next to you. What church do you see? I'm not Brilliant. Uh, let's bring those discussions uh, to a close for now. Uh, like Christian said, uh, you can submit your answers to that question online. And at the end of the service, we're going to be handing out a, a beautiful, glossy flyer answering the question about what church do you see. And there'll be a bit of vision in there, a bit of heart in the document as well, which should be cool. Uh, but I want to talk to you a little about the second part of uh, this, this two-week series, which is uh, the giving element. So I'm the awkward one that's got to talk to you about money and make you feel really uncomfortable. So I hope you enjoy that. But I just wanted to start by saying uh, this church has a remarkable history of God's provision through the past 13 years. Uh, we've gone from 16 people with 250 quid in a squash court in what is now David Lloyd Gym uh, to the 200 people across two services with two sites in the offing. Uh, we've got a genuine sense of anticipation and excitement about what God is serving. And there's never been a magic money tree to G2. There's never been a wealthy, mysterious billionaire lurking in the background. It's been the people in this room and the people that have been at G2 the last 13 years who have given generously, who have given sacrificially, that's enabled us to do what we've done and to go where we're going. And as this vision has grown and grown into what we're looking at today and next week, uh, there have been some really key moments in our story where as a church, we've given faithfully and beyond expectation. Whenever we've needed, whenever we've needed provision, uh, God's come through for us. Uh, there are stories about having to raise money for a baptistry, for an internship scheme, uh, to employ a full-time youth worker, student worker, kids worker, and youth worker, where the people in this church have given beyond their means and helped finance that again and again and again. And there are countless stories. There have been some real God-inspired moments of generosity uh, and some really extraordinary favor. Um, a couple of years ago, a student gave her entire 21st birthday money uh, to G2, just on a giving Sunday, just gave all of her birthday money uh, to G2, I think £1,000, something like that, which is amazing. Another student, uh, every, every term at university, he gave them one third of his student loan uh, to G2. So our student giving stats, you'll see in a minute, have, have gone down a bit since he's left. Um, but that was, that was amazing. Um, a few months ago, you will have seen that the PA broke at G2. So he bought a snazzy new PA desk. 
And in the week after the PA desk broke, uh, we had a coincidental donation that basically covered the cost of the new PA desk. Um, so totally, you know, God coincidence kind of stuff, which is really exciting, really part of our DNA, to know that God provides for us as a church, that he comes through for us again and again. He sustains us and prompts us to generosity when the stark reality of the facts and the statistics are overwhelming. Uh, when we moved into Central Methodist in September 2016, uh, the original quote we got was that this building would cost us uh, £680 a week to use it. Um, the last two years, we've paid £600 a month. So we're, we're also quite good wheeler dealers, as well as being quite reliant on God. So the sense of stewardship, of using what God's given us well and wisely, is part of our DNA as well. And uh, this all brings us to today and where we are today. So I'm going to talk you through our current budget and our current giving. And those of you that like statistics and pie charts, uh, this is your moment. So here is the current breakdown of our expenditure as G2 in 2018. So we currently are budgeted to spend £65,116 across a whole different remit of things. So that includes staffing costs. So we have four staff, which is myself on two days a week, Christian two and a half days a week, uh, Hannah a day and a half a week, Fiona a day and a half a week. So our full-time equivalent as a church is 1.5, which is really low. Uh, So St. Luke's Kentish Town, uh, the guy called John March, who spoke at the start of January, they've got a church about the same number of people as us. Uh, They've got a full-time equivalent of 4.8. So our staffing is very low, as Christian said earlier. So we're we're kind of punch above our weight in that sense. Um, We spend £500 a year on students. Um, We have 100 students now, according to Church Suite. So that means we're spending 42p a month per student. So we can't really afford to buy our students a Mars bar each a month, but uh, that's our current budget. And then the rest of the costs split across uh, children and youth, uh, paying for Alpha, that's £500 there. Uh, Sundays, the cost of Sundays is quite significant. So things like the, 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 the food that we have, the coffee that we have, all that kind of stuff, uh, buying, buying worship instruments and the PA desk. And we also give as a church, so we uh, give away over £6,000 to different charities and other initiatives that are going on. Uh, which is really, really good. So our yearly giving, which is the next slide, please, uh, Johnny, is um, broken down uh, by 58 regular givers that represent 72 people. So that's across couples and individuals and families. So where there's a couple giving, it counts as one person, not two. So it represents 72 people giving. And monthly regular giving is £5,427, meaning that totally yearly regular giving is £65,124. So we are giving £8 more than we are spending. So our our, our surplus this year is £8. So all the new things that Christian wants to do and that we want to do as G2, we've got £8 in the budget for it, which is really, really not great. But the rest of it is good. Uh, These these stats here don't include one-offs. Uh, so in the, in the last five months, we've had one-offs totaling £1,950. And um, this is a breakdown of where the giving is through the three largest age groups. Uh, so there are other age groups within GT, but these are the three largest age groups. Uh, how many people are giving and what they're giving? Uh, next slide, please. So uh, as a percentage of each of those age groups, uh, I just thought this is interesting to look at. So 29 people in the families age group, 100 people in the students age group, and 52 people in 20s and 30s. 66% of families are giving, 19% of students are giving. So I'm not very happy with the students of of G2, so I'm going to be getting money off them tonight as well. And uh, 46% of 20s and 30s are giving. So overall, that means 37% of people who are on church suite are giving, either through the bank or through church suite. It's worth saying that quite a lot of people that are on church suite have registered to do Alpha or Table, so not everyone's here every, every week in, week out. 
Um, but that, that is an interesting stat to see that basically just over a third of people in G2 that are registered with us are giving regularly to G2. Uh, we've got nine other givers uh, who don't fit into these age groups, like I said before. And um, my faith aim for the next two weeks is that we would see a 70% of people on Church Week giving to G2. And uh, we'll talk a bit more about this this week, obviously, and next week. Uh, but that's my, that's my prayer, is that 70% of us would feel, would feel called to give to this church. So, to be honest, we're at the limit of our capacity. We're at the limit of our capacity for expansion, according to our resourcing. And uh, there's only eight pounds for us to wiggle in. There's only eight pounds for us to squeeze out of the tank. We're kind of overly committed beyond what is really kind of medium-term, long-term sustainable. Uh, we mentioned about the new site in October, moving to Burnham. Uh, that's a significant financial cost in seeking to establish a new site and to really respond to what God's doing. So these figures aren't an alarm bell, and I, I don't think the ship is sinking. I think the ship's very healthy. I think it's quite a healthy ship, G2. And uh, I kind of like to imagine it as like, if, if, G2, if you picture G2 as a cruise ship, and I feel like at the moment we've got a lovely cruise ship. There it is. We've got some great onboard entertainment. We've got free ice cream 24-7. We've got on-deck surfing. Um, but we're just stuck in the port. So we can't really go anywhere. So we've paid thousands of pounds to be on a cruise ship, but you don't go on a cruise holiday to just stay in the port on the cruise ship. You go on a cruise holiday to adventure around the Mediterranean and the Caribbean and experience things. It's not just about the boat. It's not just about the vessel. And uh, this, for me, is kind of where I see us as G2 at the moment, where we are fine as we are, but we want to go further. We want to be that church that we see. We want to do more in response to what God's calling us to. This is a church that I don't believe wants to remain stuck in a port. This is a church of deep personal generosity, of genuine commitment to innovation and mission in order to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus. This is a church where the extraordinary gifts and the coincidental donations uh, define our journey as a church. And we'll always be free to attend. We won't be rattling the collection plates or sending the bailiffs around on a weekly basis. This church always wants to be welcoming, open to all people, whatever stage of faith people are at. And we will always seek to steward wisely and sensibly the resource we have available to build the kingdom as God calls us to do. And I believe there is more for our church. There is so much more that God wants to do for us at G2 to bring transformation to individuals, families, universities, schools, business, the city of York and beyond. We'll hear more on that next week. And this church that God is calling us to be, the church the Christian outlined with such passion and enthusiasm before, is a church that I certainly want to be a part of. And I'd like to guess that if you're in this room, that is a church that you want to be a part of too. But right now, if we walked out of this building and we didn't talk any more about giving, we didn't hear what the Bible had to say, we would probably fail to fulfill our vision. We'd probably fail to do all that God has for us. And many people here already give faithfully and sacrificially to G2. And that is amazing. And I genuinely want to honor that and, and thank everyone that gives um, because of what we give as people, because of how we give as well, this church is able to carry out all the incredible activities and mission that we saw in that budget earlier. And um, if you're here and you're exploring faith, you're taking time to consider what it means to follow Jesus, kind of dipping your toes in, you're especially welcome here and we're not going to ask you for your money. We're not going to kind of make you buy Jesus from us. It doesn't work like that. But if you're committed to G2 as your church, as your family here in York, your community that encourages you and supports you in your daily life of following Jesus and sharing him with your friends, uh, I really believe you should strongly consider whether you're able to give towards the mission of this church. The Apostle Paul, one of the key writers of the New Testament, the preacher and church partner extraordinaire, uh, frequently challenged the churches he supported throughout the um, New Testament writings uh, on their approach to generosity and money. And he instructed the church to give as they were able, to give as they're called to do so by God, to give cheerfully and not have a sense of duty or coercion or forced, 
as you read in um, 2 Corinthians 9, he wants, to, he wants people to give out of cheerfulness, out of joy what they're doing. And I encourage you to give, uh, give as you decide before God in your heart. Don't give reluctantly or out of guilt or simply because I'm talking about it on a Sunday so you feel like you have to give money as a result. Today is a part of an invitation for us to bless this church, to help us extend the ministry and mission that we have to all that God has for us. And anyone who's, who feels that what they, could, what they could give wouldn't make an impact or perhaps you feel unable to give, I just want to reassure you that um, Jesus isn't concerned or impressed with the size of your gift. He's far more interested in the state of your heart and your motivation in giving and seeking to establish his rule and reign, his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And that should be our ultimate motivation in deciding uh, what to give to G2. Uh, do we generally have a kingdom vision for seeing a transformation of York and beyond? Uh, in Mark 12, uh, we read the story of um, a woman who gives everything she has to the, to the temple offering, to the temple church. Rich people came in through in large amounts, but a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Uh, this is the kingdom evaluation for our giving. This is the kind of only benchmark that we have to meet when we think about how much money we give. Uh, nothing wrong with giving out of abundance. There's nothing wrong with giving a lot of money, of course not. Um, but we want to give out of what God's blessed us with. And it's the attitude we need to have of whatever we have to know that it belongs to God, to know that it's a gift from him. And I really wanted to encourage you and challenge you in that, to, to see your finance in that way, to see your bank account in that way, as a genuine blessing and a gift from God, as something that you're stewarding on this earth. This church doesn't magically appear out of the air. The resources for our brilliant kids' work, the fancy new PA, the, the beautifully brewed coffee, the deliciously refreshing ice creams we had as we came in. They don't just appear out of me clicking my fingers and some miraculous provision. It all costs something. And if you're here, and if you would say this is your church in York, I really urge you to consider giving. Uh, have a place from what you have, uh, with joy in your heart, with a genuine desire to bless and build upon what God's doing here. I want you to remember that all we have is a gift from God. And he wants us to give out of this place of joy and holy conviction, not a sense of guilt or a sense of duty. God sees our hearts as we give, and he doesn't rank us according to our amounts. So we're going to have a, a slide up behind us, which shows us a few options with, with giving at G2. And I just want to, if everyone's here, just, if you've got your phone on you, can you just get your phone out for me, please? And we've got a, um, a snazzy, snazzy website, uh, g2york.org forward slash give. And uh, there are three options on this page that hopefully should hit everyone in this room. Uh, so, so you can pledge to find out more. So commit to giving at a later date. You can set up giving now. Or you can click your already giving, and that is, that's good comedy value if you're already giving. I encourage you to click on that one. Um, and if, you're, if you don't feel cool to give yet, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I really am I'm just struck by how much God wants to do through this church, how much he's calling us into uh, as G2, all the new exciting things we've got going on. And next week, we'll hear more from Christian around this. And uh, if, if you feel um, this is your church, if you feel a sense of conviction and joy at being here, um, I really urge you to consider giving. And uh, to pray into it, maybe you won't be able to make a decision now. Maybe you want to click pledge and, and give it a later date. Uh, but we're going to spend a few minutes now, just some music on in the background. And uh, if you feel at this point you want to respond to giving in that way, uh, now is your opportunity.